Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Ketubot, daf Tzadi Bet, page 92. Now, I'm actually going to start at the bottom of the previous daf because it has a very interesting case that we didn't have time to get to yesterday uh, that extends into today's daf. Um, so there was a man who uh, sold the rights to his mother's ketubah for some type of tovatana, for some type of financial advantage. So in other words, what it seems the case to be is, is that he gets a certain sum of money from somebody on the condition that later on he would inherit his mother's ketubah, right? Which would only happen, obviously, if it's kind of a gamble, right? If his mother's husband dies prior to his mother, and then the purchaser, the person who he got the money from, basically, uh, you know, is would be entitled to collect that money, okay? So in other words, it's kind of like he's gambling on, first of all, is or he's making a financial transaction based on his mother getting his ketubah, but more importantly, that his mother's going to, the father is, um, is, is going to die before his mother, right? But Amar Lay, and he says to the person who he makes this deal with, e ate aim, Right. And he says, but if my mother comes and she objects to this deal, you know, I, I, I'm not going to reimburse you basically for your purchase. In other words, we can't really do this deal. My mother somehow objects to this. Right. So his mother dies right below Ararat, And she hadn't objected to this to begin with. But now the son comes and he objects to this. Right. So in other words, he agreed to this deal. Right. The mother didn't object to it. The mother dies. And he's like, oh, no, this isn't what we should do. So Rabbi Barbara said, right. When he basically objects, he's doing this as sort of like acting as his mother. I mean, I thought this case was just like so totally bizarre because like, in other words, it's like I, this seems like a trick, basically. Right, Amarle Rabba. So Rabba says to him, Niu Dahrayuti de la Kabelale, Ahrayuti de mi la Kibel. So he says, Okay, yes, he didn't take upon himself to guarantee the sale basically against his mother's objections, but did he not take it upon himself to guarantee it against his own objections? In other words, he can't come and now protest it because when he sold his right to basically collect his mother's ketuba. He basically said, I'm not going to renege on this. I'm a Rabbi Rami Bar Barhama. So now they have a similar discussion. Rami Barhama says, right, Ruvain Shemachar Sadel Shimon. So Ruvain sells a field to Shimon. Shalob Achrayut, without a guarantee. But Atta Shimon Ruvain And then Shimon comes and sells the field back to Ruvain, right? He sells it, he sells it with a guarantee, and he sells it with a guarantee, right? That basically, if the field is repossessed or something like that, he'll compensate Ruvain, you know, for, for the loss. The Atabajo de Ruvain, the Catrifle Mine, and Ruvain's creditor comes and repossesses the field from him, from Ruvain. Dina Hu, the Azul Shimon Umefatsele. The law is, is that Shimon has to go and compensate Ruvain. Right. Since he sold the field with a guarantee. Right. Ruvain doesn't own Shimon anything. 
right? Because he sold them the field without a guarantee. So it's kind of like this very strange case that it's like Shimon basically guaranteed Ruvain the field, right? The field gets repossessed because of something that Ruvain owes, but because Shimon sold it to him with a guarantee, right? He now has to pay back Ruvain, okay? Amr le Rava. So Rava says to him, Right, okay. Okay, Shimon took upon himself to guarantee the sale in general, right? That if this sale was going to be, the field was going to be repossessed by one of Shimon's creditors, right? Or a previous owner of the field, fine. But he didn't take upon himself to be a creditor to, you know, to be a guarantee for the purchaser's creditors. Like, again, sort of this, like, it doesn't really make, you know, like the case of the mother and the son. And the case here, what Rob is trying to say is, is that there's a certain standard of assumption of what you're guaranteeing, and we can't extend it really beyond that. But then the Gemara goes on and says the following point. Umoda Rava, right? Rava agrees in the following. The Ruben Sheirash Sadeb Yaakov. Ruben inherits a field from his father Yaakov. And he sells it to Shimon with no guarantee. And again, same case, right? Shimon sells it to Ruvain with a guarantee. But now a guarantee, uh, a creditor, Balchov of Yaakov comes. The country flamine, right? Um, and uh, he takes the field from Ruvain. Dina who azel Shimon umefatse In that case, Shimon does have to go and compensate Ruvain for the loss, and that's very interesting because, in other words, the land we assume it's inherited from Ruvain from his father. This is an old loan, an old debt that his father owned, but it's sort of like once that transaction happens of Ruvain to Shimon and Shimon back to Ruvain, the status of it having been inherited or that connection that Ruvain had to his father of Yaakov through the land sort of is eliminated. And since Ruvain, Shimon did it with an achrayut, with a guarantee, he actually owes Ruvain that money, even though that balchov, even though that debt is from his father Yaakov. And so then the Gemara says, my time, what's the reason? Balchov to Yaakov, kebalchov to al-madami. So exactly, what's the reason? That Yaakov's creditor is like a creditor in general, right? We don't, even Rabba basically agrees that it, 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 it's not, it, we just, it's a general creditor. We don't sort of make Ruvain responsible for the creditor of his father. Again, the Gemara doesn't totally explain why. The Mepharshim, I'm sure, discussed this a little bit more. Um, but it's interesting to see, uh, you know, first of all, these cases, beginning on the previous staff, where this case of the mother and the son Sort of tries to trick his way out of having to, you know, settle this arrangement. Um, but then this idea of like selling it with a guarantee and, you know, who's responsible for a later Balchov uh, that comes along. I, 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 again, this is all property law. I think this is part of what makes Masakhi Ketuba very interesting is that the Ketuba, in a way, it's it it is a property law. Like it it it's just part of like your estate or your inheritance. And so therefore all of these laws of regular creditors or laws around the two boat are all going to be taught and tied together and they're not really treated as separate halachot. How we treat one is going to be the same as how we treat the other.
Okay. I want to jump to Amabet, where we end up, I would say, getting even more into the weeds of exactly these kinds of cases. If you if you look at the the page of the Gemara, I don't know if people are learning on Safari or with English, but if you look at what's you know classically the Vilna Shas, you will see a very small bit of Gemara and a very, very large amount of commentary around the side. It's one enormous uh, comment from the Baleatos vote. So here's the case upon which they're commenting. So Reuven sells a field to Shimon with a guarantee that if the field is repossessed, meaning if somebody comes to say that they really have the right to the field and that it's no longer Shimon's, that Reuven himself will then compensate Shimon for the loss of the field, right? So he's so Shimon has a guarantee he's not going to lose out if some if Ruvain's creditor comes to repossess it. And then in fact, and that's exactly what happens. Ruvain's creditor comes and repossesses the land from Shimon. So now Ruvain has to go and rescue. It's called rescue here. Shimon. Right? He's got to try to, to prevent the, re, the repossessing because and, and at this point, the creditor the creditor cannot say to Ruvain that I'm not answerable to you because I'm taking the field from Shimon. Right? I mean, the whole point is the reason he's taking the field from Shimon is because it was to pay back what Ruvain owned. Mishum de mafkat alay hadar. So Ruven, because Ruven can say back to him, whatever you take from him is really coming back to me because he's the one who guaranteed the sale and therefore would have to compensate Shimon. So so the creditor cannot say, this is only between me and Shimon at this point. You're out of it. I've got a lien on the property. I'm going to take it. But Ruven can say, well, I already guaranteed it to Shimon. So you're taking that, the, the fact that you're taking that land means that you're call, you're kicking up my guarantee, which means you're still in business to whatever extent that means, with me, with Ruvain. Now, <laughs> this seems like it's a complicated case to begin with because, because of the 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 deal between Ruvain and Shimon. The fact that there's a creditor who's coming after Ruvain's funds, I don't, you know, it's it's tricky that Ruvain is hasn't paid the creditor, right? That's that's the part that I, you know, in terms of like just practical what happened here, I, it's not clear why he wasn't paid. Maybe they have a dispute on whether he owes it. That could be. Right. And what happens then is that the Rishonim really, really delve into what's going on here and, and what are the implications of the case as it's set up in the Gemara. So, for example, and I'm just going to run through a few commentaries, um, even outside, just so that we can get a sense of what this kind of this small piece of text leads to so much, um, you know, ink on the on what's really going on. So Rashi, the real question is, right, what what difference does it make whether Ruvain is the one to deal with the creditor or whether Shimon is the one to deal with the creditor why is it important for Ruvain to be able to say to the creditor don't think that you've just got Shimon to deal with you still have me to deal with why why does Shimon care like let it you know he's going to guarantee it for Shimon regardless why does he need to go back to deal with the creditor so Rashi thinks the Ruvain can go to the creditor and insist that the creditor to take an oath to say that he never got payment. That's why I suggested that, you know, the, I, maybe there's a, a dispute between Ruvain and the creditor to begin with about whether the creditor 
can actually go and collect. If Ruvain thinks he has no right to collect because he's already because Ruvain himself has already paid it back, then the creditor is really messing with things when he goes to Shimon. Right? It's it's sneaky. It's not it's not on the up and up. Alternatively, it could be that in fact there's some counterclaim by Ruvain that would then you know cancel out the debt, and so that even though the creditor can come and collect from Shimon. But then he's going to have to pay Ruven anyway. So then Ruven wants to be in the circle of the discussion because it'll just make things easier as far as his sale to Ruven goes, to Shimon goes. Now, as I said, there's this very, very long toast vote. So the the toast vote, what did they do? They they questioned that first explanation of Rashi, right? Because the creditor cannot get payment from a property that has a lien on it. You have to take an oath. You can't just say, oh, it's mine. Right, so the moment you've got this this requirement to take an oath, there's no discussion of the, this oath in this passage of the Gemara. So the Rishon have to bring it into the story. Now they know that that's part of this whole claim and counterclaim, but it becomes it becomes tricky to say what at what point does it kick in? Why is it happening here to begin with? So the Tosfos have another suggestion that perhaps Ruvain has to be in this story because. Maybe it was forged. Maybe the claim that um, that he owes the money was a forgery to begin with. Now, understand that that's the Balitoso reaching for an explanation for what could be going on here to make sense of what is what this text. Again, it seems a little bit obscure and and confusing. Why is Ruve needing to be involved? So the Balitoso are reaching, you know, to say, um, well, if it's not about an oath. Perhaps it's because he knows it's a forgery, so he wants to be involved. He wants to make sure that that is the case. Not everybody likes this, obviously, right? There's other Rishonim who argue with the Balito's vote. And and also to say, you know, if Shimon is trusting the creditor, Shimon isn't going to require him to take that oath. Ruvain is going to require him to take an oath. That oath is going to be, you know, he, he's not going to take the oath if the if the note is a forgery. So then where, where is, who is reliable in the story? Is it the creditor? Is it Ruvain? Is it Shimon? Um, and these are the. It's not. It's not even the backdrop. It's right. It's imposing the scenario on top of the Gemara because the the text of the Gemara gives us such a simple, straightforward case that doesn't make sense without much more involvement to explain what's really going on. And that's why we've got you know we, there's other commentary from the Ramban, not on the Daf, meaning the books of the Ramban are separate. They're not, you're not going to find it literally on the page of the Gemara. But, you know, his suggestion is that perhaps a price changed, the price of the land changed, and maybe now Ruven wants to pay with cash instead of letting him to come to take the, the property. And the rush, again, Rabino Asher, he's got another suggestion. Maybe Ruven wants this whole thing to go to court, and maybe Shimon can't be the one to bring it to court. Meaning each one of these commentaries from Rashi on down is introducing elements to explain the scenario that is in the plain sense of the Gemara that with details that are nowhere to be found in this plain sense of the Gemara. What really is the case? I mean, again, that's what a Machok at Rishonim is. That's, that's why they argue it out to figure out exactly what's going on. And some, you know, some details are addressed better or sit better, you know, with one Rishon or with another. But I think it should be clear to all of us that this, the text of the Gemara itself makes it sound so smooth and simple until you step back and say, wait, why is this happening? Why does Ruven get involved here? 
And then the only way to answer it, at least the only way the Rishonim can answer it, is by bringing in external details. It it, it just the case is interesting because like I I couldn't see how this could happen in the modern world, but this must have been a way that a lot of deals were structured because probably people they didn't have banks, right? So probably value was in land and not in cash. And then they'll say, instead of all, instead of me paying you back directly, I'm selling this. You could go collect from him. Right. I feel like it's very roundabout to begin with. Yeah, but I, I agree but with it you. It must be because I, I, I'm making an assumption. I literally have no idea if like that was the finance. You know, in other words, there were no banks. Like, so you you wanted things to be in land as opposed to cash. Yeah, it would be easier that way. I mean, it would be. E- I I think it would be easier if we were in cash, right? Yeah, I, we wouldn't have we this case. We think of it if, as easier in cash, but maybe not then for how they live. Maybe not then. I have a lot of questions. I need to speak to, like, a historian. Well, that's <laughs> our adapt discussion for the day. Bring us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 